Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is study number 33 through this series in the book of Revelation. And the title of our study today is By the Blood of the Lamb. And today we're going to look at Revelation 12, 7 through 17. Would you please join me now in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus. That without it, there is no forgiveness of sin because you bore our sins on the cross satisfying forever and finally the the wrath of God the Father against sin and sinners providing the pardon and justification that we have through you so Lord we we stand amazed at the grace of your son and Lord I pray today as we consider this text that we would be encouraged today if we indeed are in Christ that there is pardon, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that we have been united to the Son of God and the Son of Man, and that there is real hope and refuge in you. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts today. And, Lord, I pray that you would open eyes and ears that, that do not yet know you to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might know that they might taste and see that, that Christ is good and that they might come to salvation in him. We just pray, Lord, for the illumination of your word today as this study, as we can, as we go through this study. And I pray, Lord, for clarity of speech as I preach and teach this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Revelation 12, 7 through 17. Revelation 12, 7 through 17. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard with a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, 
to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the reading of God's holy word. The cannibals. You will be eaten by the cannibals. These words were spoken to dissuade John G. Payton from witnessing the gospel in the New Hybrids Islands. For most Christians, the violent barbarianism of the islanders was sufficient reason not to live among them as a missionary. These were the islands that many supposed to belong to Satan forever and where his power was too deeply entrenched to be safely challenged. But Patton could not neglect the awful danger of the unsaved and pray that he might be the means of bringing the perishing to the Savior. When Patton arrived on the island of Tanah in 1858, he discovered the dangers firsthand. He says, The depths of Satan were uncovered there before our eyes in the daily lives of the people, he wrote. Patton's plan was to live among the people, earn their trust, learn their language, and bear testimony to the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. On the many occasions when his life was threatened by musket-wielding natives, Patton relied on prayer. A biographer writes, He trusted only in the Lord who had placed him there, and to whom he had been given power in heaven and in earth. He prayed to Christ, either himself to protect me, or to take me home to glory. Soon Patton was able to speak to them of sin and salvation, and he did this unceasingly, his biographer writes. During the 25 years of the islands of Tana and Anawa, Patton was used by God to convert most of the people and to establish strong churches. And once when back in Scotland for fundraising, he wrote that my soul longed after the Holy Sabbath of Anawa. How could one person succeed against such overwhelming odds and in the midst of such satanic danger? An answer is given in our text today in Revelation 12.11 which says that Christians such as Patton have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Now, Revelation 12, it presents a grand history of the church in the form of a vision, and a woman, her son, and a great red dragon. The woman stands for the church through which God brought his son, the Savior, into the world. The dragon is the devil who opposed the birth of the child, and persecutes the church after Christ has ascended in power. Verses 1-6 through six introduce the players in this holy war, showing how God overcame the devil through the birth and the saving ministry of Jesus Christ. Now starting in verse 7, the vision continues by showing the devil's ongoing warfare against Christians. Satan suffered a terrible defeat in the coming of Christ so that his activities are curtailed. And nonetheless, he continues to rage with the resources he has left and the spiritual warfare that marks this age between the first and the second comings of Christ. The theme of this vision, starting in verse 7 of Revelation 12, is a, is a defeat suffered by the devil because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Revelation 12, 7 says, Now war arose in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And according to this verse, not only does spiritual warfare take place on the earth between Christ and his people and Satan and his servants, but there is also in, uh, also warfare in the realm of the angels. Michael is described in Daniel 10.13 as one of the chief princes of the angels. Daniel had prayed for God to forgive his people and restore them to Jerusalem. An angel was dispatched to tell Daniel that his prayer had been heard, but his passage was blocked by an evil angel. It was only when Michael came to help that, that Daniel's angel could get through, Daniel 10.13 tells us. On that occasion, it seemed that Daniel's persistence in prayer provided the spiritual resources for Michael's victory, Daniel 10, 2-4 tells us. And now the book of Daniel ends with a promise that during the trials of the church age, Daniel 12, 1 says, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Revelation 12, 7-8 describes this long foretold holy war when it says Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the, dra and the dragon and his angels fought back. To understand this passage, we must realize that this battle took place during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, culminating with his ascension into heaven. Revelation 12, 13 reports that after the dragon had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, who had given birth to the male child. And this means that the dragon was cast down before the church age. You see, Jesus' victory on the cross, crowned with his ascension to heaven's throne, defeated Satan and his army, after which there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and Satan was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down after them, Re Revelation 12, 8-9 says. But what does it mean that Satan was to be thrown down out of heaven? And Revelation 12:10 answers that the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. Christ has silenced Satan's attempts to accuse Christians before God. Douglas Kelly says this, when, Satan, when Jesus completed his redemptive work for sinners and took his place on God's throne, Satan could no longer come before God to criticize the saints. Rather, Jesus is now there, where Satan at one time could walk in and out before God. He is there as our advocate rather than Satan as our accuser. And from this perspective, the battle between Michael and Satan might be thought of as a legal contest in the court of heaven. The heavenly voices rejoice with Satan's defeat. He who accuses believers day and night before our God has lost his court privileges in the court of heaven, Revelation 12.10 says. This fits the picture in the Old Testament. Job 1.6 tells us of a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. As an angelic being, even the fallen Satan had authority to come with other angels into God's courtroom. And God asked Satan whether he had encountered my servant Job, a blameless and upright man, and Job 1.8 says. Satan responded by accusing Job, saying that he honored God because the Lord had so richly blessed him. Satan's accusation led to the terrible suffering of Job and Job's subsequent testimony of faith in the Lord. Revelation 12 states that Satan is no longer able to make these accusations. In the holy war in heaven, Revelation 12:9 says the great dragon was thrown down. 
John describes him as that ancient serpent reminding us of how the devil led our race into sin and condemnation. He is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, Revelation 12, 9 says. In fact, the word devil itself means slanderer or accuser. As Satan means adversary of God's people, and he works as a deceiver of the world in its unbelief. These names tell us how Satan wars against God and his people. He desires to deceive and especially to accuse us of sin in the courtroom of God. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know what it means for Satan to suggest evil thoughts to your mind and then afflict you with the accusation that a person with such thoughts cannot be a true Christian. But Satan has now been cast down. While he can afflict us here on earth, he no longer can accuse us in the presence of God. The New Testament associates the casting down of Satan with the saving work of Christ. Luke 10.17 records that the return of the 72 evangelists whom Jesus sent out. And when they reported their success in the preaching of the gospel, Jesus cried out in, in um, Luke 10.18, I saw Satan fall like the lightning from heaven. Now, as Jesus saw, the news of his redeeming work removed Satan from heaven. In John 12.31, Jesus was speaking about his coming death on the cross, saying this, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So Jesus saw his work of redeeming us from sin as the end of Satan's campaign of accusation and deceit. And now having ascended to God's throne of heaven, Jesus by his presence forever bars Satan from appearing to accuse us. James Hamilton says this, Christ accomplished the victory and apparently God sent Michael to enforce it. G.K. Beale writes, what Michael does is a heavenly reflection of what Christ does on earth. Christ won the victory on earth, so Michael and his angels assailed Satan, defeated him, and cast him down from the courts of heaven, Revelation 12, 7-8 tells us. And given the emphasis of this passage, it's so important for us to understand how Christ defeated our accuser and how we throw him down today. Revelation 12, 11 tells us not only that Christ defeated Satan, but that his people routed the dragon, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. You see, Satan's warfare of accusation against believers has been defeated by the blood of Christ and by our gospel witness. You see, first, it is by Christ's blood that believers overthrow the accusations of the devil. The reason that Satan appeared in heaven to accuse us was that he was seeking our eternal condemnation under God's law. And an example is provided in Zechariah 3.1, which saw Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Verse 3 states that Joshua was in fact guilty of sin, and now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. As Israel's high priest, Joshua represented the entire nation, which had been in exile because of its sin and its idolatry. Satan loved to point this out, and he urged that God could not justly bless such sinners by restoring them to Jerusalem. This is precisely the accusation that Michael and his angels put an end to because of the conquest of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, Revelation 12:11 tells us. Before Jesus' death, Satan had a good cause against God's people. 
When he accused believers, such as King David, he could point out to actual and heinous sins that they had committed, such as David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. When Satan prosecuted Moses, there were real sins for him to point out. And so it was for the other Old Testament believers. And God admitted into heaven through faith in the gospel that pointed forward to Christ alone. But you see, when Christ came and he offered his own blood as a true lamb of God to pay for the penalty of his people, there was no longer any charge against them that was able to be held in the courtroom of God. When the law has been satisfied, there is no charge to prosecute. When the sin has been removed, there can be no accusation. This salvation was acted out in Zechariah's vision of Satan and Joshua the high priest. Jesus appeared and commanded, remove the filthy garments from him. He said to Joshua, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, Zechariah 3.4 says. And on this basis, Jesus said, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, Zechariah 3.2 says. You see, Christ took Joshua's filthy garments to himself and bore the penalty of his sin on the cross. God then transferred or imputed Christ's righteousness to Joshua so that he was justified before the law of God. And this is why Paul rejoiced in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, Satan has likewise lost the ability to accuse you in the courtroom of God's justice. It's not that you have sinned, you have but as 1 John 1, 9 puts it, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. I've used the example, the, the famous story of how the devil came to accuse Martin Luther. The great reformer was performing the important work of translating the Bible into the German language, and Satan wanted to discourage him. Luther reported that, that Satan appeared with a long list of his many sins, a point that mocked Luther's desire to serve the Lord. Luther confessed the truth of his sins, but he pointed out that Christ's blood had cleansed him of all them all. Luther threw his ink pot at Satan, leaving a mark on the wall that can be seen to this day. Charles Wesley wrote of the Christian salvation, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should diest for me? In fact, the hymn's final verse tells of our victory in Christ. Though condemnation, now I dread Jesus, and all in him that he is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach thy eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be, that thou my God should die for me? You know, second, Christians conquer by the word of their testimony, Revelation twelve eleven says. Satan wants news of his defeat kept as quiet as possible. But when Christians spread the good news of forgiveness in Christ, Satan's power is diminished. Satan has power, Satan has a hold over our family members and friends by the accusation in their consciences that, that they can never be accepted by God. Christians conquer this diabolical warfare by telling the truth of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, after Jesus sent out his evangelists, they came back rejoicing that they had cast out demons, Luke ten seventeen tells us. And we too wield power against Satan's kingdom whenever we testify of the good news of Christ's saving work. D.A. Carson says this, the, the host of darkness are pushed back by Christians bearing witness, giving testimony to who God is and what he has done in Christ Jesus. How else can we push back against Satan and his forces? 
we will be defeated if we simply keep silent. If you never share the gospel with anyone else, you are defeated. You are not pushing back the frontiers of darkness. This is how Satan is defeated, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of your testimony. Third Christians conquer because they have loved, not their lives, even unto death, Revelation 12, 11 says. And since Christ has saved us by his blood, we not only proclaim the gospel, but we hold on to it for our salvation, even to the point of death. We embrace all manner of suffering for the sake of Christ, including the daily battle with sin, which we have been called to in our sanctification. D.A. Carson says that, that suffering will, will take different forms for each of us. Some of us will be called to suffer intellectually, and so will be mocked for taking up our crosses and daily following Jesus with our minds. For others, it will be actual physical suffering that we have to endure. You see, it's not easy to suffer for Christ in this present evil age, but a true Christian will endure anything rather than give up his or her faith in Jesus. James Hamilton writes that it is better to die trusting Christ and cling to the gospel than to go on living by denying the gospel. Without the gospel, when you stand before God, all Satan's accusations will ring true, and you will be damned with Satan. You see, this points out how important it is that each of us should confess our sin, that we should trust in Jesus Christ, we should be cleansed by the cross. Satan wants to accuse you before God, and he has all the evidence he could ever need. The only way for you to be delivered from the eternal wrath of God is to turn to Jesus, receive in faith his death on the cross for your sins, and then live forever trusting in the finished and sufficient work of Christ. The final verses of Revelation 12 explain the situation of Christians and the church after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, showing two results in our present age from Christ's victory. The first is the eternal rejoicing of heaven and its inhabitants, and the second is the temporary suffering of the church. See, Christ's victory causes praise and rejoicing. Revelation 12, 10 through 12 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before God. Therefore, rejoice, all heavens, and you who dwell in them. See, Christ's victory has brought the salvation promised by God, revealed the power of God to save, initiated God's blessed kingdom, and established Christ's authority as Savior and Lord. What better news could, could we ever need to hear? Satan, the accuser, has been cast down. The victory has been won. Salvation is secure. The kingdom of God has been launched. Christ is reigning, Douglas Kelly writes, of growing up in a strict North Carolina town where dancing was for prohibited. And yet when World War II ended and the soldiers came and the rules were set aside and people danced in the streets. You see, the greater news of Christ's victory over Satan causes our rejoicing to reach even to heaven. And Doug Kelly writes this, Therefore, we have every reason to joy, be joyful people, and this joy of immediate access to a reconciled, smiling Father should always be reflected in our worship. Christ's victory brings us everlasting joy in heaven, but Satan's fall to the earth causes us temporary suffering in this present age. Revelation 12, 12 continues, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
The final section of Revelation 12 depicts Satan's attempt to afflict the church on earth since he can no longer accuse Christians in heaven. Revelation 12:13 says, And when the dragon saw that he had thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. See, Satan seeks to harm Christians in time because he cannot touch them in eternity. He seeks to thwart our earthly solitude because he cannot thwart Christ's saving of our souls. Satan is livid about his defeat, and he hates nothing more than for Christians in Christ to obey the word of God and witness to the gospel. Revelation 12, 17 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman who went off to make war, and the rest of her offspring are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I mentioned in previous studies that when the Allied forces landed in Normandy in, in June 1944, that the Second World War was just as good as finished. The German generals began appealing to Adolf Hitler to negotiate the end of the war. And Hitler did exactly the opposite. In his mad rage against his enemies, he did all that he could to hurt them. One example is the V-2 rocket campaign that Hitler rained on the cities of England in the last months of the war. Under the rocket launch sites that were finally overrun, over a thousand V-2 rockets had landed in England, killing many people and badly damaging London. Why did Hitler do this even though the war had been lost? Revelation 12, 12 answers, Woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The point is that Satan persecutes the church here on earth, not because he thinks he can take away our salvation, but because he knows that he cannot. The devil is driven by pure malice in the face of certain defeat. However disturbing it is to contemplate his malice, its futility is still encouraging to suffering Christians when friends or governments unrighteously turn against us, when false accusations hurt us, when we are treated unfairly because of our faith. Through Christ's blood and the word of our testimony, we have the victory above. And for this reason, we suffer Satan's attacks here on earth. Persecution for Christ's sake thus shows that we belong to the Savior whom the world crucified so long ago, but who has already conquered. Ours should be the attitude shown by Peter and John when they were beaten for the gospel. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus, Acts 5.41 says. You see, Satan's attacks against our buildings, our budgets, and our bodies show only that he can do nothing about our blessing in Christ and the fact that we now belong in the eternal glory of heaven. Satan's time to persecute us is short, as even he knows, but our eternal rejoicing in heaven with Christ will last forever. Finally, John was shown visions drawing from the Old Testament imagery that show God's protection and provision for the woman during the dragon's persecution. Revelation 12, 14 says, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The Old Testament often spoke of God's carrying his people to safety on the wings of eagles. And this symbolizes God's supernatural intervention to deliver the church from danger. As we have seen in many of our studies thus far in Revelation, a time, times and a half a time, equals three and a half years, which symbolizes the tribulation of the church 
throughout this present age. God not only brings his people to safety, but he causes our faith to be nourished primarily through the heavenly manna of his word. And yet Satan still attempts to rage. Revelation 12:15 says, The servant poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Satan's deceits are like a flood that would drown us, just as Pharaoh sought to drown Israel in the Red Sea waters. But God intervenes to save us. Revelation 1.16 spoke of a sharp two-edged sword that came from Jesus' mouth speaking of his gospel message. In contrast, the flood came from Satan's mouth highlighting the false teaching by which he wants to sweep away the unsettled and the unweary. Revelation 12.16 says, But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And what this means is, and it speaks to, is when God opened the earth to swallow the false witness, Korah, Dathan, Abram, who opposed Moses during the Exodus, Numbers 16, 26-33 tells us. These images encourage troubled Christians to pray, remembering how God has pledged to safeguard his church during the trials of this age. David urged us in, in Psalm 32, 6-7, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the gut rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You see, Satan has been cast down from heaven by the victory of Christ. He can still breathe earthly affliction on us, but he has no ability to accuse us before our God or threaten our right to eternal life. This was a great truth that John G. Patton taught to the former cannibal named Namuri on the island of Tanah. This man had heard Patton's message of salvation through Jesus Christ. He had believed. He had experienced salvation. He became an evangelist. One day he was preaching the message of Christ's blood when a witch doctor approached and began beating him with a club. Though badly injured, Namuri escaped and he fled to Patton's house. Patton nursed him back to health and urged him not to go back to his village or continue preaching. But Namuri refused, reminding the missionary of how Christ's blood had conquered Satan and set him free to preach the gospel. He says this, Missy, when I, when I see them thirsting for my blood, I just see myself when the missionary first came to my island. I desire to murder him, just as they now desire to murder me. Had he stayed away from such danger, I would have remained a heathen, but he came, and he continued coming to teach us, till by the grace of God, I was changed to what I am. And now the same God that changed me to this can change these poor Tanese to love and serve him. I cannot stay away from them, but I will do all I can to bring them to Jesus. You see, it was by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of witnesses such as John Patton and his convert in Murray that the light of Christ conquered islands that had once been exclusive, the exclusive province of Satan. What will God do where we live if we seize by faith the victory of Christ's blood and fearlessly proclaim his gospel without concern for suffering, loss, or even death? The answer, according to John's vision, is that Satan will be cast down from his throne. And the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ will come, causing heaven itself and those who dwell in it to rejoice with great praise to Christ. Revelation 12, 10 and, or, yeah, Revelation 12, 10 and verse 12 say, See, if we will daily embrace the cross-bearing death of Jesus, giving our testimony to his salvation, we will conquer by the, by the blood of the Lamb. You know, as we wrap up this 
study, I want to encourage you. You know, the Bible tells us that we are to do, this is for every Christian. Every Christian is to do the work of an evangelist, Paul told Timothy. And that's good news. You know, but as we just saw with this example of, of the missionary who was converted under, or not the missionary, but but the, but the person, Namuri, who was converted under the ministry of John G. Patton. That's the testimony that we have. We once were blind. We once had no eyes to see or ears to hear. But, but Christ, he brought people into our lives to share with us the truth of what he has done in his finished and sufficient work for us. You see, as a people of God, we have a role to play in the mission of God. Sure, we, we preach. It's God who saves. We preach. We preach that, that Jesus alone can save sinners like us. And God carries forth by the Spirit that gospel message faithfully proclaims into the hearts of men. And by the Spirit of God, he plants gospel seeds in their heart that will bear fruit in his timing. For some, they'll hear the gospel and they'll be saved right away. For others, it'll take years. We need to be faithful to the gospel. And let me say this. There are some people, even today, who say, you know what, we shouldn't sing of the blood and we shouldn't preach of the blood. And that is so wrong. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we have the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus said in that Luke in John 19:30, it is finished. That was the decisive moment in redemptive history whereby sinners could be forgiven. If we don't preach to the blood of Jesus, which he spilled on the cross in our place and for our sin, we have no hope. We have nothing to proclaim at all. And, and similarly, if we deny the resurrection of Jesus, if we never speak, if we only speak of the blood of Jesus, but we never speak of the resurrection, we are giving people a half gospel. Jesus not only suffered in our place and for our sin, but he also was buried and he rose again on the third day. You know, you might not face the intense kind of persecution that Patton and other martyrs and people have faced throughout church history. But you might suffer ridicule at your job for talking about Jesus. What's your answer going to be? Is it going to be to retreat and back down or to lovingly share of the grace of Christ in the gospel, no matter the cost? You know, this is the thing. Sharing the gospel comes with it a cost. If you share it, if you share it at work, it might mean that you lose your job. Are you ready to pay the cost? Are you ready to trust God enough with your job to even lose it? Don't you understand the point? Jesus didn't call us to a life of ease and comfort. In fact, Jesus, before he, Luke 9.51 tells us, before he set his face to Jerusalem, he tells the disciples, 
in Luke 9, 23 through 27 to count the cost. So I say to you, have you counted the cost of following Jesus himself? And you know what? Here's the thing. When, when Jesus talked this way in his ministry about counting the cost, people retreated. People retreated from him. There would be great crowds and Jesus would tell them, you got to count the cost. Because he knew that it would cost something. It cost Jesus his life in our place and for our sin. You know, and I'm reminded, and I've mentioned this many times in these sermons, story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died in, in under Nazi Germany during World War II. But he wrote a great book called The Cost of Discipleship. I, I highly recommend that you check that out. And there he talks about cheap grace that, you know, we just live cheaply. We cheapen the grace by living in our sin, by, by you know, just living however we want to live. Instead, what we have is a costly grace. It costs the Son of God and the Son of Man his life in our place and for our sin. Even in the last decade, we've seen people cheapen the grace of God. They have suggested that the death of Jesus in our place and for our sin is cosmic treason against God and other things that are heinous and blasphemous. And make no mistake about it. When you say that, cosmic, that the death of Jesus in our place and for our sin is cosmic treason against God, that is a heinous crime in the eyes of God. And it's also blasphemy in his sight. What Jesus did on the cross was, was not cosmic child abuse. It was the fulfillment of prophecy. It was the fulfillment of the day of Passover in which, you know, the Israelites had to, had to offer atonement. Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that, that we no longer need the blood of goats and bulls. We no longer need such a sacrifice because Jesus is the once and forever sacrifice. Pay the penalty in our place and for our sin. So without the death and resurrection of Jesus, as Paul says in, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, we among all, all men are to be pitied. We will face ridicule whether we like it or not. We, we have a message that is incredibly countercultural. We have something to say that speaks to the issues of the day on gender, on sexuality, on biblical gender roles, on, uh, on the gospel, just the gospel itself. Paul tells the Corinthians that it's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. They have no eyes to see, no ears to hear. Until God opens their eyes and opens their ears. We see this on the road to Emmaus. These disciples, they don't even know who Jesus is. They don't have any idea of who he is. And Jesus, in Luke 24, he opens their eyes. He opens their eyes. This is illumination. This is the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He opens their eyes, opens their ears to see and what does he do next? He gives, in my estimation, the greatest sermon in the whole Bible. He interprets for them from the law and the prophets, from the Old Testament, about Christ himself. So, see, today we, 
face incredible challenges from those who profess Christ and yet deny critical and absolutely essential doctrine. But we also face challenges from outside of the church, from non-Christians. We need to not, we need to have the attitude of John G. Patton. We need to have a spirit of courage. You know, because what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7 applies, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of love and sound mind. You know, we can take courage in Christ because Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. So you know what? We can say this. You know what? The world and the flesh and the devil can come for us and come they will. They might take our lives, but they can't take our they can't take away our Christ from us. We must preach as dying men to dying men. We must preach a Savior who actually, and Lord, who actually saves and who alone can satisfy and who alone can save. And we must preach him in the power of the spirits. We must not trust ourselves. We must not rely on ourselves. We don't save ourselves. We don't secure ourselves. We don't continue to be secure because of our effort or ability. We don't grow in Christ because of our effort or ability. We don't encourage other people because of our, our ability. We don't, we don't shine as bright lights for Jesus because of our own ability. We don't do anything in the Christian life, is what I'm saying, in our own effort or our own ability. At all times, in every way, and in all phases of life, in sphere of life, we are upheld by a sovereign God. He sees us. He knows us. We cannot fake him out. The battle for the souls of men is real, but it's also over the point of this text. is that it's over before it even began. And so we proclaim, not from a position lacking strength, but from a position of strength. But we don't proclaim in our own strength. We proclaim in the strength that God provides, by which he upholds the universe, by which he holds us fast in Christ. And we are held fast in Christ. That's the good news of Romans 8, 31 through 39. It's Christ who secures. It's Christ who justifies. It's Christ who adopts. It's Christ who glorifies. It's Christ who secures us. So it might seem that Satan is winning, that the battle is going ill, and that it's not going well. But the real truth of the matter is that the war is already over because Christ has already defeated the devil. And Christ is victorious. He's a victorious and triumphant and exalted Savior. So you have every reason and all can have all confidence and can proclaim with boldness and take courage and take heart and proclaim Christ all for the glory of his name. And you know what? If you struggle with that, let me ask, let me, let me say this. I want you to, what I want you to do is this, as I wrap this up. I want you to think of the glory of the grace of God. I want you to really think about this. He saved you from the pit of hell. He saved you 
as the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. That, those are the wages that you deserve. You deserve death. You deserve damnation. You did not deserve forgiveness. You deserve death and condemnation. But what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is relevant. But God being rich in mercy has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. You know, even in continuing in verse 10, God has prepared for you before the foundations of the world the works that he has given you. God not only knows what you need and you need Christ, but he has also prepared a work for you because of his grace by which you're saved to work for him, not for your salvation, but because you've been saved, because you've been indwelt by the Spirit, because you've been declared not guilty. You're his friends. He has prepared works for you to proclaim the work of Christ in and through you. You see, in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, it tells us that Christ is adequate. You know, we're not adequate for these things. In fact, the more that we recognize that we aren't adequate in and of ourselves, Christ's power will be manifest through us. Everybody today wants to know some secret to the ministry of preaching and success. It's not revolutionary. It's trusting in Christ. It's trusting in his sufficiency, trusting that he is enough for you. And that through you, he will use you in your weakness to magnify his strength and power. As 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 tells us, you know, he comforts us. He comforts us. The thing is, is that we need to be comforted by the gospel. And we need to be challenged by the gospel. We need to do the work of an evangelist. We need to preach the message. That is our, that is why we're here. To preach glad tidings of good news. When Jesus first preached his sermon, he, in Luke 4, he opened the scroll to Isaiah 61 and proclaimed, Freedom to the captives. You and I, we were once captives held in bondage by the God of this world. But now by the grace and kindness of God, God, has, as Colossians 1 tells us, he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. So I want you to think about this. I want you to meditate on these truths. And then I want you to pray that God will set these truths Set your heart, set your affections on fire for the glory of Christ so that you would not be able to not speak of these glories, but that you would speak of them, that you would testify of them, because that's what men like John Patton did. They spoke faithfully and courageously and boldly of the grace of God and of the faithfulness, his faithfulness. That's what we need today, faithful, focused, bold and courageous Christians, unafraid, unashamed to carry the glory of Christ to the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that for the blood of Jesus, we thank you that you're enough, that your work is finished and it's sufficient for us, and that you've empowered your people, you've indwelled and empowered your people through the Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've re we've received from Christ himself in the word of God. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for this time that we can consider this, these points, these great truths. And Lord, I pray today that you would encourage our hearts, that you would comfort us, but that you would also convict us and help us, Lord, to be bold and courageous Christians like John G. Patton. Help us to be faithful to the cross. Help us to be faithful to live under the authority of your word and to walk by the Spirit and to bear testimony to you with our lives, mostly and with our words and with our lives. Because you are, you are a triumphant, exalted, and victorious Savior. And so we praise you, we exalt you. Help us, Lord, to carry forth glad, the glad tidings of good news in Christ alone that alone saves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.